Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jerry Buckley, and I am here with my co-host, Jody Wesby. Today, we are joined by Matt Hoops, who is Vice President and Head of Public Policy and Regulatory Affairs at Upstart, a leading lending platform which employs artificial intelligence tools and partners with banks and credit unions to provide personal loans using non-traditional variables to predict creditworthiness. Before joining Upstart last year, Matt played a central role in the formation and expansion of the Marketplace Lending Association, known as MLA. This association represented the interests of fintech lenders that with respect to legislative and regulatory initiatives at the federal and state level. Matt's leadership gave this new trade association a respected voice that was heard in Washington in a way that was quite remarkable for a new trade association. From his new position at Upstart, Matt has helped to facilitate the launch of a successor trade association to MLA, the new and expanded American FinTech Council. Given the central function that data plays in fintech world, it is not surprising that both Upstart and other companies that make up the American FinTech Council would have a keen interest in any legislation that regulates how data may be used and how it must be protected. Matt, welcome. Thank you, you bring Jerry. You bring a new perspective to this podcast series. We're delighted to have you. And for the benefit of our listeners, could you begin by describing the role the fintech lending plays in our nation's financial system? What need does it address and what tools does it bring to the marketplace that make a difference from what has been available through traditional lending businesses? Absolutely, Jerry. Thank you. And I think over the past 10 to 12 years, you've really seen the rapid growth and adoption of fintech credit options in the marketplace, both consumer loans and small business loans, student loan refinancing, you name it. There's a credit product out there that's provided often uh, via a partnership between banks and uh, technology companies. And I think that the growth has really underscored that there were a lot of people out there who were feeling that their options in the credit marketplace were lacking, businesses as well, and that they were willing to click around and you know, vote with their fingers, so to speak, for a better product. And I think that you can think of the category as a full range of the credit spectrum from people who were stuck in an overpriced government student loan who are looking to refinance into a lower rate option 
because their rate didn't match their risk profile to people who were thin file, uh, it, meaning you know less information in their credit file, maybe because they were new to America or younger. And they also felt the options that might have been available to them didn't match their risk profile. And they're willing to kind of do the work seeking information online and, and found this new breed of lending platform and partnerships. And I think ultimately, if you think about the value of using additional data, it enables you to provide a, a clearer picture of an applicant and therefore to extend credit to applicants that might have been outside of the previous thresholds based on a credit score or a debt-to-income ratio. And that ability to find and, and assist those borrowers is really important for you know, both equity, financial inclusion, and you know, again, building kind of the American green. That's what access to credit can help with. And so we can kind of get into that a lot well, more know, later. But I think data is the lifeblood of that type of lending. No doubt about it. And you know what's interesting is the rapid expansion of fintech lending, its acceptance by the marketplace, by users, by people seeking credit is quite remarkable. And it does demonstrate that there was and is a need there for this type of service. Before turning to the specifics of private and data security legislation, I think it might be useful if you were to describe the general legislative and regulatory environment that fintechs are encountering in the public policy arena today. What are their major challenges? Is the legislative terrain more or less challenging than before the 2020 elections? Don't have to spend a lot of time on that. I know it's a big question, Matt, but maybe you could just give us a, a thumbnail on that. Sure. I think it's more challenging perhaps than before the 2020 election, if only because you know there's overall been a, quite a bit of skepticism that's been really heating up about technology generally, and especially about the larger technology firms and their roles and practices. And that tends to trickle down even to the startup ecosystem that tends to generate a lot more support uh, from policymakers. Uh, nobody wants to enshrine large financial monopolies. Everyone loves the upstarts of the world uh, because they know that that kind of you know healthy disruption can be incredibly important for, again, financial inclusion, for equity, for uh, a dynamic economy. But there's a lot of explaining to do, a lot of work to do with policymakers to make sure that, that they understand that the practices are responsible, that they're equitable, that there's an enormous amount of effort and oversight that goes into, for instance, partnerships between banks and technology companies. And so we in the public policy universe working in fintech certainly are busy. And um, that includes both state and uh, federal work. Nat, let me join Gary in welcoming you. That was very interesting. And the fintech industry is sort of taking by storm so many parts of our economy. We're delighted to have you with us today. And we've had other guests talk about data is the new oil or data is toxic and data is a lot of things. Certainly is the lifeblood of the financial services industry. And that's even more true in the fintech sector. Your company and others in your industry need to be able to work with data to create new products and expand financial service opportunities, as you just said, including opportunities in the underserved markets. As states enact these privacy laws, are there any aspects that are being proposed that have the potential to adversely impact the fintech industry's ability to serve its customers? Well, that's a great question. And, and certainly, Anyone in industry is always 
going to favor one set of rules over 50 sets of rules. So, you know, just the emergence of a patchwork of privacy rules and trying to run a a nationwide business uh, via digital, you know, internet options is is going to create complexity and cost and and challenge. I would say that you know there's always concerns about private rights of action when those are are created. There's concerns about like the amount of power that the consumer has having already permissioned access to kind of um, request that they be removed entirely as that that data can help companies offer additional products and so forth. And so we have our eye on all of it. And I think I've been encouraged by the fact that in so far this Congress at the federal level, the most notable proposals have been quite even-handed and moderate and um, certainly seeking to be bipartisan. Mm, yeah, they're being cautious, aren't they? I think there's a re- realization, especially f- for federal lawmakers, that this is this whole um, new economy around, built on data and built on you know large amounts of data and complex algorithms is incredibly powerful for you know the future of our country. And so there's a healthy desire to not screw that up. I think, and so they're choosing to pursue a path that. Is more at least so far with uh, the Del Bene bill and the Klobuchar bill to certainly try to make sure that there's a consensus across the aisle about what we want to do at the federal level about privacy. And so I think that 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 approach makes a lot of sense because it gives the best chance for an enduring set of policies rather than policies where the pendulum might swing from from one party to the next based on an election every four years. Yeah. Well, the states that are enacting privacy laws generally have the same themes. I mean, they're kind of following California. But of course, each is different. And California started with the California Consumer Privacy Act or CCPA in 2018, but replaced it with the California Privacy Rights Act that was adopted at the ballot box last year. That will be effective January 1 of 23, which sounds like a long ways away, but it's really only... 18 months, maybe. Virginia and Colorado have also enacted their own privacy laws. Virginia left out the B2B provision, which I thought was good in a sense. But other states are, are you know, following suit and, and aggressively looking at privacy laws far more than what we're seeing on the federal level. Yep. So for companies like yours that operate on the borderless internet, this must create quite a compliance challenge. What are some of the thoughts in your industry sector on that? I think that it's a an ongoing area for both monitoring and also for consideration around the adoption of technology. So the one thing about the internet and the growth of technology is that it has extended into compliance. And so the hope is that with tools, some of which you know Buckley offers and, and others, there's the ability to seamlessly adopt uh, you know compliance policies that help conform certainly that can add cost it can add complexity it can add a significant you know overlay from a burden if the uh, implementation of those laws requires an inc- a burdensome reporting regime and you know potentially some of these laws it could really harm the ability to actually underwrite customers if 
you know, some of the traditional financial services exemptions and protections under Gramm-Leach-Bliley are not are not uh, protected and retained. So it is it is an emerging area of focus. It's it's an enormous beast, and it's uh, one that everyone is going to have to continue to be vigilant about to you know both remain compliant but also to um, ensure that they're you know set up for success under the new regime. You know, picking up on the flip side of what Jody just asked, Nat, and focusing on Washington, where you're based, while it seems logical that one national standard would make a lot of sense in the United States, Congress just hasn't been able to move in this area. Now, given the pandemic and the resulting economic dislocations that are unprecedented challenges, perhaps this is understandable. But at the same time, the European Union has faced similar or worse challenges. And they continue to develop policy and data security regulatory framework that is setting the pace while the United States, where the digital economy was born, is lagging behind. Why do you think this is? I think it speaks to our our partisan era. And I think it speaks to our preference in America for accountability among the bureaucracy. So I think that when you think about Europe's structure with the commission and the host of different bodies that the parliament and the the host of different bodies that exist there, the ability to function, you know, without, you know, a huge amount of, I guess, accountability to the immediate national interest or the national politicians creates a a bit of separation that enables Brussels in in ways that obviously have, you know, infuriated at times the, the nation states of Europe to you know move forward and march forward with a very technocratic approach on issues that are technocratic like technology and privacy. And so the United States just has a system that I think is more often responsive, call it you know more responsive to populism or or more responsive to the inherent skepticism of government, uh, especially a faraway government. And so I think it just means that it's much more difficult to make, especially in this extremely partisan era, to make law at the federal level that would introduce a significant sea change to the underlying statutes that govern this area. So I think it's a a little bit of a unique system that you could probably trace back to to Tocqueville or some original commentator on, on the American spirit or the American democratic ethos. And I think you'll also see that the best chance that something will happen is if it starts from a bipartisan center. So as I mentioned before, that decision on the part of the, especially uh, prominent you know, Democrats with expertise in this area like Klobuchar and WNA to try to pursue a path that is not particularly partisan um, is incredibly, you know, over the long haul, a more promising um, approach than one where you know, you could see a partisan bill jam through and then four years later, watch it get undone. You know, Nat, that was a very insightful discussion. And your observations about our democratic system and the, the contrast between the technocrats in the uh, European Union is, is very interesting. We haven't suffered a Brexit yet. I guess our first Brexit was in uh, 1860, but I think we've resolved that issue. So we, we we can so, only we can only hope we can only hope we can but, only um, hope. You know, yeah. we can only hope and, and I'll say one other thing about the GDPR and you know just my observation has been about this privacy area that it doesn't necessarily seem to elicit the popular passions either way so 
you know, if major changes have been made to the the practices of of large technology firms operating in Europe due to GDPR, it certainly doesn't seem that those changes have trickled down where you know people are in the streets saying, "I can't you know find my local wine shop on Google anymore." My you know my life has been negatively impacted by this law, and vice versa. It seems that a lot of times these landmark privacy efforts. And sometimes it's because they, the, the implementation is delayed. Other times is that as they delay, they see some reforms and they're kind of changing and shape-shifting. But they tend to become sort of more compliance approaches that certainly require a lot of work for lawyers. And they require technical data approaches. They require new cybersecurity protocols. They can impose expense on the private sector. But the question of whether they, they dramatically change the core operations or approach or use or access to consumer data is the kind of bigger question that that remains to be seen, I would say. Yeah, I agree. Following up on that, you know, I note that uh, state legislatures, when they've acted, have usually for the industry that you work in, and and I actually work in as a provider of legal services, there's been a uh, carve out, as you referenced before, for those entities that have an association with the Gramm-Leach-Blaviak privacy uh, regime. Uh, but, you know, those are, <laughs> we know that they are in, in California, for instance, it's an activities exemption. So many activities that financial services firms engage in are outside of the actual customer relationship. And the same is true in other states. They are considering or have adopted an entity exemption. If you're subject to Gramm-Leach-Blaviak, you're not subject to the, this, the provisions of the state legislation. But regardless of what form of exemption is provided, it seems unlikely that financial institutions will be allowed over the long term to operate on one track and the rest of the commerce on another, particularly if general privacy law provides protections that are perceived as greater for the consumer uh, at the non-financial firms. So wouldn't it be a mistake for financial services industry not to deep, be deeply engaged in discussions regarding what privacy rules are going to look like for commerce generally? I think it would be. And I think it would be a mistake not to get in there and explain the the downstream implications of bad law that really limits consumer or small business opportunity. And so to the extent that the financial services sector can team up through, you know, larger uh, bodies like the Chamber of Commerce and support their work, I noticed that they've endorsed uh, some of the legislation proposed by, by Democrats on Capitol Hill. And so it's sort of yet another sign that the overall business community is eager for a moderate you know, federal privacy legislation. And I think that the financial services industry certainly supports it. Everyone just has their own fish to fry, though. And so to the extent that there's you know, an exemption for Gramwich Bali, uh, whether it's activities or entities-based, that creates the sort of avenue towards uh, compliance for the financial services industry that you know, while there will be changes, there will be challenges, that there's an avenue that people can see that won't be so dramatically disruptive. And I think that creates the sort of Willingness to work with larger entities like the chamber and others to defer. Yeah. Uh, I just think you and I, Matt, 
talked to a lot of people in the financial services policy arena and their representatives. And I think the Clegney uh, Gramlich Blally is is a, certainly a reasonable. The industry has been the one that's been the most involved in regulation for privacy, other than health. And uh, it's not unreasonable to say, well, we it's going all right. It's, everything's all right here. But I think that as these changes take place, there's going to be quite a challenge. Jerry, I'll, I'll say one thing that I might put this in context, which is that I think that policymakers are always going to be open in this area to reasonable efforts to protect consumers' rights to access better products. And to the extent in our space, for instance, that requires the use of a lot of data about you know, the customer and their financial lives, because that's what helps you underwrite someone who doesn't have a perfect credit score. And so I think that the, the impulse to protect the privacy and to make sure that the information security protocols are strong and to make sure that the data is used in appropriate ways and not sold without consent, all of those things can be sharpened and tailored. But the core effort, the core need to in a risk-based pricing system, access a lot of data in order to give someone a chance at a better product and a better life is a competing desire for um, policymakers. And so information from federal regulators on artificial intelligence, we really drew that line very sharply from the need for a lot of data. And in order to process that data, the need for AI and machine learning but the core gets back to the customer, that the need to assist the customer with a better product that is where, and a more inclusive product that is where the whole need stems from. And so I certainly see there's, there's going to be a lot of bumps on the road, a lot of challenges, but that core competing desire on the part of policymakers to make sure that customers can access better products is um, a powerful one. Yeah, but you know when I listen to your speaking over the last few minutes, it just struck me that what we really need is simplicity. We need simplification in our privacy frameworks. And what you're just now talking about with artificial intelligence, I mean, if privacy isn't bad enough, then we layer AI on top of it. And, you know, now there, there's a bill on the Hill that's aimed at AI and controlling AI, the Algorithmic Justice and Online Platform Transparency Bill that was recently introduced by Ed Markey on the Senate side and Doris Matsui on the House side. And that bill aims to improve transparency in algorithms and rein in harmful algorithms and also have cross-government investigation into discriminatory algorithmic processes in the economy, which that arrow sort of points at the financial sector. But I can just see with the use of AI, and you're right, I mean, you can especially when I think I've been done some work in the mobile market and attracting young mobile customers that big banks wouldn't even look at. And globally, it's a huge market. And AI is very valuable in that if the legislators just don't mess it up (laughs) and make another big layer. So AI and privacy are really joined at the hip. And we find increasingly Jerry and I are bringing in AI into these discussions. But in the financial services sector, it depends on, you know, a lot of times really personal data and the results of of the data impact people's lives and the ability to explain how individuals, to individuals, how and why their financial profile 
it's at least partially determined by artificial intelligence, could really impact the market receptivity or the pricing or availability of credit that's going to be part of any data governance regime. And of course, too, if anybody gets in and poisons the pool of data, then you could have adverse effects. But how do you see this playing out in the context of fintech lending? There's so many uses for AI. Fintech's just one player. You're absolutely right. And I think that the approach that Upstart has taken is what I would call move fast, but bring others along. So we've done this work with the um, CFPB uh, under their no action letter program for years, where we share the fair lending results that are derived by our bank partners who use our, our technology. And we recently also partnered with the NAACP to offer them a lot of uh, transparency on how that whole process works uh, from the algorithm decisioning and and the uh, fair lending outcomes. And so I think that the key is to ensure that there's a sense of appropriate human oversight of AI and that there's a workable opportunity for transparency. And then there's the need to protect the testing regime. So financial services, I think, is and especially lending is probably one of the most advanced areas because we have laws like the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and the disparate impact regime where you actually have to measure your outcomes mm-hmm. and uh, you know seek to um, find less discriminatory means uh, it, while achieving your business objectives. And that's a, a unique framework that I think other parts of the economy could probably learn from a little bit and, and seek to catch up to. So I guess I would say that we have we actually have a process in place in our area in lending that's kind of unique and further along than many others where data is being applied. And so the nightmare scenario is the situation that you've seen with the facial recognition and policing where you had bad outcomes and bad products that were perhaps rushed to market and they were not effective for minority faces and and they ended up they've led to two significant laws banning or severely limiting the use of facial recognition technology, even though there's you know widespread acknowledgement that that technology could, in theory, lead to a lot less um, you know false accusations, false imprisonments, etc. And so I think you know everyone who works in technology should, should sort of look to situations that have led to bad outcomes and very restrictive laws and instead seek to bring you know different groups and say, there's an enormous promise in the technology, but we have to continue to manage it well and be incredibly transparent with it. Yeah, I agree. Matt, you know, you sort of pioneered that approach. And when you helped to found and, and grew MLA, you had a consistent pattern of outreach and explanation to affected groups and to the communities that would benefit by this. I've, I've been, uh, you know, I attended a number of your sessions and you that was a, I think that sets an example for opening up lines of communication. You know, you had Black Caucus connections and you had, you know, various connections where you actually didn't just have speakers, but actually worked through and had discussion. And I think that was extraordinarily valuable. I, I hope that that continues in the industry. You know, uh, one last thing. There's a Section 1033 of the Dodd-Frank Act, charges of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, promulgating rules regarding consumer access to financial records, basically providing for the portability of a consumer's financial data. The CFPB has promulgated 
dated an advance notice of proposed rulemaking that asks for comments from the public, and many commentators have weighed in on this. Could you share with our audience what is at stake and how stakeholders have lined up on these in their comments? When you put people at the table and they feel that they can have an impact on on your work and what you do, and it isn't just simply for an exercise to check the box and you're really engaging, then you have an opportunity to forge consensus and move forward. And where you don't forge consensus and you have to move forward anyway, you tend to, um, at the very least, have people feel you know, that they have a shot at the next go-round because they could see that the, the effort was sincere. So I believe in it. Uh, it was how I worked on the Hill for Scott Brown. He you know, was one of the most bipartisan members and, and uh, played a critical role in a number of, of financial services bills. And he said, you know, your door always has to be open and you, you always have to be reaching out to try to make a difference. And so that's um, really where I learned that ethos. I think I reference uh, Section 1033 of the Dodd-Frank Act requires this availability of data and portability of data. And uh, that has been the subject of an ANPR by the CFPB. And there's been a lot of public comment weighing in. Could you uh, share with our audience what's at stake and how the stakeholders have lined up in their comments? Yeah, I'll just give a little bit of a framework that you know the the law now requires that customers can control their own data, and so if they want to seek a better product and that they want to permission the product that they're seeking to you know examine their financial information, then that's their right. And so I think the CFPB has been chewing for a lot of years on how best to implement that. Obviously, the with all the data breaches that we have seen, information security is critical and the banks are very, very good at that. And I think the banks and fintech companies have been working hard on various means and avenues to effectively share that information in ways that the banks feel is safe and that accomplishes the customer's objective and the technology service or fintech service that they've chosen's objectives. But it it ultimately, I think, reflects this sense on the part of the Biden administration, uh, and I think it existed in a bipartisan way, that bottling up data by large financial institutions could s- limit both innovation and it could limit competition in ways that wouldn't be healthy for the long term of the United States. And so what you've recently seen with the CFPB moving forward really s- seeks to put a finer point on that. And to ensure that you know innovation in financial services and the customer's ability to find the product that they want can't be hampered by a bank's desire to keep you know the data uh, private under a uh, information security claim or whatever. And so that situation is certainly one that is very long time in the making, but is a really promising sign for the future of fintech. We'll all be watching with interest as this evolves at the CFPB. And it does get the CFPB quite deeply involved in privacy and in AI issues. Another agency, in addition to the FTC and the others that are players in this space. It's really been great to have you, Nat, and your insights, I think, are really important. There's certainly you know, from one of the largest industry sectors and Congress always has to pay attention to what the financial services sector is saying. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today and to share 
your thoughts and I'm sure it'll be of value to our listeners and we hope to have you back. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed being on and uh, there, this is a moment when there is so much happening between the regulators trying to wrestle with the future of AI, 1033, as you mentioned, and, and access and rights to data and how that can be managed uh, with security, the, the privacy regime, it all kind of fits together into one large mosaic and it requires that we all navigate through it and, and uh, you know, work and have a lot of conversations where we can learn, learn from one another and learn uh, the various requirements that each stakeholder has in moving uh, their business forward and the people that they seek to serve and help forward. So thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. National Privacy Legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation. 